I want to write just rampaging disaster bisexuals all the time. Welcome to Allura Public Radio, the official Black Warren Books podcast. I'm your host, Chris, and follow me as I interview authors, editors, artists, and staff who make the unique LGBTQ plus publisher work. Today is a very special episode as we're having a roundtable discussion on the topic of horror with four amazing authors. Gretchen Felker-Martin, author of Manhunt. Allison Seib, author of Shield Maiden. Howard Davum Ingham. Uh, author of We Don't Go Back, A Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror, and Bitter Corella, creator of Midnight Pals. Thank you all for coming on. Oh, Hi, Sonona. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for oh. having us. I mean, seriously, it is awesome that I was a- that we were able to get all of you here. And I want to, th- as I said, I really want to thank you all for joining us. And I can't wait to see what we can uh, talk about today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Super exciting. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just start off and ask each of you individually uh, who you are for anyone who might not know. And then we're going to go right into some questions on the field of horror, which all of you have experience or love or a connection to. So let's start off with Gretchen. Who exactly is Gretchen Felker-Martin? Well, um, I am a longtime horror writer and film critic, and my debut novel, Manhunt, just came out the past year. I write a lot of New England-focused horror. I think that that should be enough for anyone who just wants to like pick my voice out of the herd. <laughs> okay. And let's move down to Bitter Corella. Uh, who, who, who's Bitter Corella? Hi, so I am Bitter Corella, creator of the uh, Hugo-nominated microfiction Twitter account, uh, Midnight Pals. Um, currently working to turn that into an audio podcast, as well as putting together the third collection of Midnight Pals uh, microfiction book. Um, I am also... Uh, wait, uh, well, that's that's probably enough, right? I've... <laughs> okay, I was gonna say I was like I need to I need I I I I want to talk more about myself and, and heap praise upon myself, but that's, <laughs> that's that's more than enough. That's fine. That's good. Allison, and who is Allison Side? I I don't know. I've never met them yet. Oh really? <laughs> mm. Um, I uh, I write predominantly in the uh, tabletop roleplay game industry. Um, I've worked on games including uh, Call of Cthulhu, World of Darkness, and uh, I've recently um, completed some work for uh, Abyss from Sanguine Publications. I have a few novels to my name, but uh, primarily you're more likely to um, play one of my adventures. Yep. Between, yeah, horror and fantasy, if I'm correct. Um, horror, fantasy, and science fiction. Awesome. And Howard. Who is Howard? Um, I'm Howard David Ingham. I am the writer of the Bram Stoker Award-nominated um, book, We Don't Go Back, A Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror. I uh, 
have been writing for 20 years. I've written a lot of fiction. I used to write role-playing games exclusively many years ago, and I also worked on Call of Cthulhu and What of Darkness, and one of my dubious claims to fame is two citations in the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia. Um, I have recently returned very briefly to role-playing games for Green Ronin, and I am a contributor to their forthcoming game, Cthulhu Awakens. Um, but mainly, um, I do film criticism, and you may have seen me on a documentary called Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, The History of Folk Horror. Oh, that was you. I loved that. <laughs> that, oh, <thank> is, <laughs> that is awesome. Now, let's just jump right into it, and anyone can answer. What does, what's your connection to horror? What does it mean to you? Well, um, if, if no one minds, I'll, I'll hop in and answer that first. No, go ahead. ahead. Horror, to me, is all about sublimating the ways in which I spend my life pressed against discomfort. And it's about investigating that discomfort. Why am I feeling revulsion? Why am I feeling terror? Why am I feeling all these things that we sort of lump under the heading horror? And once you start to really think about those things intently, you get down to the building blocks of how we form like our moral systems. Um, and you start to realize that a, a lot of human behavior is based on sort of knee-jerk fear and disgust. And when you work in horror, when you write horror, Hopefully you can guide people into confronting that. Excellent. Um, who's next? Um, um, I was going to say many of the same things. I think it's, uh, I find horror and investigating horror, both writing it and writing about it, cathartic more than anything by reading and um Reading horror, which is both visual and on the page, I am able to approach the things which I am afraid of, the things which give me, you know, as Gretchen said, discomfort, the way in which we navigate our lives, you know, as someone who's queer, as someone who's still working through their gender identity and a lot of those things in which at great cost to their own personal relationships, it turns out. Um, these things can be a profound way of finding out things about ourselves. Um, I think the best piece of film writing I ever did was about um, the movie Possession, which is somewhere in my top 10. Um, well worth watching. Uh, it's such a great film. And mm. I approached it using the um, medieval spiritual practice of Lectio Divina to use the film as a meditation on my own struggles with human relationships with um my depression and all those are mental health and all those other things so yeah horror horror is a cathartic thing for me it's a thing that enables a sort of self-reflection and is a safe way of letting off steam in a lot of ways and as i said both writing it and reading it oh excellent um Alison yeah, or... Would... Okay, okay. Corella? Oh, 
I was just gonna say I I agree with all that pretty much. Just you know, I like I I you know I like to have a bad time, and it's it's better. It's like we're have you know we're always having a bad time in real life, but it's better to have a bad time on the page. <laughs> oh yeah, amen. X yeah, Allison. Um, I see horror um, ra- rather uh, rather through the lens of uh, of, of conflict um, between uh, the 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 individual trying to to assert a sense of agency and uh, and forces which are trying to strip that away. It's um, I see it as a conflict against uh, helplessness, uh, which I, I think is kind of uh, appeals to uh, to my to my rebellious spirit. Um, that that kind of frames how I look at horror, and kind of uh, kind of represents my relationship with the genre. And it's a good way to approach it in terms of gaming as well, is it not? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, the the um, the the classic example, uh, of of course, being from the uh, from the Lovecraftian, the uh, the the cosmic horror, um, that which is uh, far beyond uh, human consciousness or or, or awareness, um, and uh, and our attempts to grasp it, which of course um, I think is is quite a strong metaphor for the uh, for the queer um experience definitely yeah. question then what what sort of uh subgenres of horror do you think best fit for lgbtq experiences body horror no question mm. body yeah. horror yeah when yeah. when you are <laughs> forced by social pressure to have this like obsessive, extremely closely monitored relationship with your own body, ideas about like ecstatic results, like your flesh literally changing, your body morphing, taking on new functions and forms, those things become so psychically powerful. They were enormously powerful to me, especially as a child, and they remain really potent. Yeah, I mean, that's a hell of a thing, isn't it? Um, I the um. So one of my very best friends is the guy I do the Birdcast podcast with, and he um is very straight, and he can't do body horror. He can't do Cronenberg. <laughs> it's oh. like outside of him, he just can't do it. I, you know, I'm all over. I'm all over Cronenberg. Cronenberg Senior, Cronenberg Junior, less so, but I'll do. I'll I'll allow it. But you know, all over that. But he can't. You know, he he'll do zombies. He'll do slashes. Do all those things, but body horror is basically where he goes. No, because that guy's melting, and <laughs> you know the idea that you know bits of the body might fall off, or bits of the body might be changed or penetrated in odd ways is a thing <laughs> that is a yeah yeah right. It's immensely queer, isn't it? It's right. it's just how we do it, you know. And vectors of I mean, video drone, right? Right. People are getting yeah. penetrated by videotapes. <laughs> Betamax. Because VHS <laughs> is too big to fit inside a torso. You didn't think that through, David. But yeah, you just... You, you see this happen all the time. And existence where people are getting gently fucked up the spine by video game consoles. I don't know if anyone saw a brand new cherry flavor. Um, oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. There's that, that wonderful, like, rib pussy. Mm. Oh my god, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
Allison, uh, Corella, any um, any responses on your end? Um, I agree. I think uh, I think um, body horrors. Uh, it, it it cuts very close, doesn't it? It it feels it feels incredibly intimate, and I think that's um, that's that's one of the uh, one of the reasons that I think um, it it. Uh, it goes uh, it goes straight to the uh, straight to the audience um, in a, in a way that uh, in a way that a lot of other um, styles of horror doesn't uh, doesn't quite manage and of course the uh, the the allegory there that you've uh, that you've highlighted is just so on the nose yeah Corella um, no I agree I think body horror is really the the standout that's that's the place um, there there's another genre that I I've feel like is also kind of um uh there's a lot of potential for queer commentary though i don't think it often very well does it does queer, uh, or what it does it does it kind of badly and that is what my, my guilty pleasure which is kind of exploitation um and oh, it's now you're yeah. on my uh full heart <laughs> it's, uh, it's Texas Chainsaw um, Massacre. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of that. Just the idea yeah. of like, okay, what happens? You know, when when because I love it when some city folk go out and in, into the boonies and get got by some hillbilly freaks. But um, it's all about like, okay, what happens when you're away from you know the society and the rules of what society says is right? And these are people who they live apart, and you know, and and the horror is always like, oh, they no longer live by the rules. Of of the society says you gotta live by, and a lot of these films are saying, like, oh yeah, that means that they they're like you know they're they're all like cross dressing weirdos, and it's like yeah, that's that's uh, yeah. problematic as they say, but <laughs> also <laughs> I just find it like very fascinating. Well, yeah. it has it has been said that. Uh, if we're talking about body horror on one side of the spectrum, slasher movies and th- and movies along those lines are usually considered much more um, conservative in ideals and thoughts and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, they basically are like morality tales about like, oh, hey, um, if you're if you fuck, if you're a slut, you're gonna get got, um, and so yeah, they are they are kind of very you know, regressive, uh, in that sense, you gotta, in order to put the lurid stuff on screen, you have to be like, all right, we got to show that it's bad, but, um, there, there's a lot of potential, I think for, um, you know, actually looking at that stuff there. I don't know that it's actually I, I done think very much. All, all the subgenres though, have examples where they can be made queer or queer. There are queer examples of pretty much every kind of horror. So there, um, so for example, my boyfriend is writing a master's thesis about queer wolves, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which, you know, and basically looking at things like queering things like the Teen Wolf TV series and all stuff like that, right? Um, and, you know, the werewolf is can be made queer. You've got, I mean, vampires, I mean, duh, vampires, you know, Poppy Z Bright with, um, um, what's Lost it called? Souls. Lost Souls. Yeah, which is, which is a, Damn, that's a transgressive book, and it I could never be published by a mainstream publisher now. It was in Penguin in 1994, but you know, um, <laughs> um now, yeah. I'd like to yeah. uh to to kind of uh 
click up on uh, on what you said there as uh, as the werewolf as uh, as a queer um symbol uh representing the uh the inner um like libidious self the uh, the, the primal uh, self uh, the the incarnation of uh, of kind of the, the bestial lust is is a very um very uh like on the nose example i think yeah absolutely yeah i mean ginger snaps as well i mean she gets hairy you know, there's oh, yeah, that scene where she's in the bath and she's desperately trying to shave her legs and she's just getting hairier and hairier. Um, there's so many ways you can look at that. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, if you really think about it, uh, werewolves, I mean, that is a form of body horror, too. Mm. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, you know, your, your, your body contains something that is both itself and not itself. Yeah. I mean, look at, um, I mean, just uh, American Werewolf in London, for example, of body horror for that. Yeah. Wow, mm-hmm. yeah. Company of Wolves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as well, yeah. The guy's face, like, going inside out in that movie. Um, <laughs> wonderful effects in that. Mm, yeah, the amazing practical effects in that film. Um, one uh, one other example which um, which I'd like to, to flag up is the idea of a... Of a, of a of a perceived society of uh, of uh, um has has anyone seen uh, nightbreed the yes uh, the <laughs> yeah yep. yeah it's the, like oh the, i want to uh, be a gay monster too <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, a, a lot, you know, at the yeah. moment you mentioned uh the the uh the the exploitation i just thought um alternative society kind of uh, yeah. basis for uh, for stories there Absolutely. Yeah, which yeah. of course is the basis of pretty much a lot of the world of darkness stuff that we've both worked on, as well, isn't it? Excellent. Uh, and as you were mentioning that any subgenre of um, horror can be can contain LGBT plus themes. Um, a recent movie that came out was They Slash Them. Yes, it was. I mean. It's dumb as hell. Is my <laughs> and it's very. I, much, I have heard that. It's very much. I have heard that. Streets blundering around in queer world and and trying to say something nice and supportive and sort of walking all over themselves in the process. I, I I'm generally very very deeply uninterested in what straight people have to say about us. You. In other words, you definitely want to watch something that's written and created by queer people for queer people. Right. Um, You know, Knife Plus Heart is a a great recent example um, set entirely in, like, the the Parisian pornography production underworld of the 1980s. Um, Or Jane Schoenbrunn, they just came out with We're All Going to the World's Fair uh last year oh that's such a great movie it really is um and they're going to be adapting imogen binney's nevada in the next few years so like trans film is is starting in the way that that trans horror has has begun to jump off um and i'm i'm very excited for that and of course also there's decades and decades and decades of queer film um of all sorts, Funeral Parade of Roses and Ginger Snaps and just countless movies. Rebecca. 
Yeah, that actually. Oh, wow, bring- Rebecca, yeah. Yeah, that actually okay. brings me to another question. Besides yourselves, what authors or what works by those authors would you consider the most in most influential and necessary for positive LGBTQ representation in the genre? And what would you like to see more of in modern horror in general? Well, I've got Gretchen here. Gretchen, you've been called out. All right, all right. So just just a a little previs. Um, When you talk about positive queer representation in media, a lot of the time I hear that boiled down to like an instructional tone that is meant to make people think better of queer people or oh yes yeah oh queer queer characters Mm, packaged for straight audiences right Mm -hmm. or even if they're not packaged for straight audiences they're they're packaged as like moral instruction that absolutely in order for queer rep to be good the characters have to be like good people if they were real um so um, immediately my mind went to the sad story of Isabel Fall. Oh. Uh, Do you want me to handle this one? Uh, <laughs> yes, I don't need another uh, homicide threat. Yeah, all right. Um, it, 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 I, presumably all the people who are actually guests know about Isabel Fall. Um, Isabel Fall wrote a short story called I Sexually Identified an Attack Helicopter, which is a science fiction story, but really it's a horror story. And what it's about is someone in the future who's been given tactical gender reassignment. And the idea is that essentially their transness has been appropriated by the military industrial complex. And it's a cautionary tale. And the end of the story has the person um, questioning whether they're doing the right thing and then deciding that it's okay for them to bomb school children because they're a diverse voice in bombing school children. And oh my <laughs> it's an amazing amazing story but <laughs> a lot of the people on the internet who wanted queer representation to be instructional and upbeat found it deeply offensive to the extent that there's a huge amount of brigading on poor Isabel Fall who was hadn't really come out properly as a trans woman and was being very cagey about her identity and ended up um the last, the last I heard was that she detransitioned because she was just so, um, and and had gone into a mental health spiral because of how badly she was treated. And and the, the sequel to this is that one of the trans people who had led the um, led the charge against Isabel Fall turned out to be an engineer for Lockheed Martin or something like that. Uh, oh, he was and therefore a diverse <laughs> voice in war crime. It was a and a, like a support. <laughs> I mean, just because you're a diverse voice in bombing civilians, yeah, he was a, a doesn't mean it's okay to bomb <laughs> civilians. Gretchen, what were you about to say? Oh, I was gonna say he was like a support systems engineer. So he's he's like indirectly facilitating the bombing of foreign countries and the production of yeah arms manufacture. Um, so yeah, the the people who and in fact it was more than one of the harsh critics of the story um, who wound up working for Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman and other arms manufacturers and who yeah, BAE like systems and a lot of sublimation. You know, they're just 
They're just small beans. I, I can't believe you would. <laughs> oh yeah, no, you can't be mean to a little. That that was a big part of the Twitter discourse. It's like I'm a small bean. I'm a little. You know, you can't be mean to me. It's like yes, but you still facilitate people getting vaporized in Yemen. Yeah, but to like them, to them, that's not real. The only real things are their feelings. Um. <laughs> but you see, they're exactly the kind of people who the story was about and who the story was. And of course they felt attacked because they should have, because it was about exactly right. the thing that they were doing. They should because it's not like shit because they're doing something shitty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, <laughs> it is not aspirational to want to be the soul of the boot that grinds us down. No, and nor is it, you know... Nor is go along to get along a good enough excuse to to help produce munitions. Damn straight. Yeah. Damn Allison, straight. Any um any LGBT voices or authors that you look at? Uh oh, that's that's tricky to say because um the uh the, the publishing world kind of has uh, a tendency to select um, to, to select people and and place them uh, two platforms, uh, you know, uh, less um, less so in in terms of uh, in, in in terms of uh, looking towards um, like um, yeah, more in terms of 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 uh, of, of marketability of ideas uh, rather than uh, than. Act, then, uh, then how uh, how how approachable a lot of uh, a lot of those ideas might be. So um, I, I I think I, ideally myself, if I was to try and pick any specific um, authors or writers, it's probably going to be the, uh, the the newer voices who are who are coming into the uh, in, into that world and uh, and uh, and are trying to move uh, out, out outside of the uh, of of the of the larger publishing establishments. Yeah, uh, which is yeah complicates it quite a bit, I'd say. Um, one of the best horror stories I read recently was by Raquel Benedict, and it was called The Empath, oh, and Raquel's a queer. Mm. Yeah, it was yeah, a queer woman um, from the US, and it was a great story. You can find it online. Yeah, it's I think. it's pretty much like. Um, uh, Gretchen mentioned about how a lot of the uh, premier, more um, pushed LGBT stories are for straight audiences. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or people who are looking to assimilate into straight culture, which I, I think is is something worth talking about. Also, just to get in real quick, um, since I didn't actually point to any other authors, my personal pick here is Alison Rumfett, who I'm sure you all know. Um, she released Tell Me I'm Worthless at the end of 2021 or the beginning of 2022. Um, and it's it's just this, like, oh. absolute nitroglycerin haunted house story. I have her, I have her next book here with me. It's fucking incredible. Oh, who wrote um, Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke? Oh, excellent. Eric LaRocca. Yeah, Eric LaRocca. Fantastic Eric author who is just totally unafraid to show like complete nightmare messes of queer people. And that's a complete nightmare mess of queer, queer people. Um, have someone to cuddle after you've read it. <laughs> yeah. I'll, uh, 
I'll also jump in with uh, TJ Klune, uh The House in the Cerulean Sea. Um, I've just finished um, that one for our book club last uh, last month, so we thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, and I'll, I want to just chime in very quickly with uh, um, Eve Harms, who is the author of Transmuted, which is just a really gonzo body horror story about discomfort in your body that um, really kind of tackles the idea that this is a problem that may not have a solution, that for some of us, we just never will feel the comfort that, oh, you know, love you. we hope to, but um, yeah. Excellent. Um, when writing horror, do you consider the literal or the metaphorical first? In other words, do you consider what the story would mean or what, what would the scare what would be the scariest when you're planning your stories or when you're planning on writing anything in general uh well i don't i don't i know everyone's got their own process but for me i i have to do literal first um mm. because i um if i think too metaphoric i have i have a problem about being extremely online and um, I think a lot. Of, this is a problem for a lot of authors who spend too much time on Twitter, which is if you start thinking of themes, you basically just start out like trying to answer critics before they've criticized you and end up just being extremely didactic, um, which I've seen a lot, um, especially with, I don't know, uh, younger queer writers where it's like oh uh like like Gretchen said it's like now we got to make everyone good people so um I just kind of I just go more literal it's like I I have to just write something that's <laughs> gross and not worry about whether or not it's edifying Allison yeah I think oh no, go oh, ahead Allison no Allison okay oh goodness um I I, I I'm so tired of writing uh queer characters as good people I I want to write just rampaging disaster bisexuals all the time <laughs> just complete hot mess oh, yeah. um, when I'm writing I tend to and, and strangely enough this goes for when I'm doing uh, role play games as well I tend to have an image of an idea um, as an event uh, I have like uh, an event that I want uh, to to see characters undergo something uh, something happens i i have that and i stretch the idea out first to okay so what is what what's happening what what are the what are the events what led into this where does it go from there and then i ask myself what what themes am i looking at and try to work those into into an almost narrative like story and just kind of spin it like that um and it's probably the uh, the the least holistic way of actually writing a story <laughs> but it's the way you it's that, that's your process yeah it 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 uh, it works as as long as uh, as long as that that central um like event image idea whatever it is like what happens in at the at the end of chapter 4 as long as i've got that central i can generally get everything else um in line for it awesome that's pretty much exactly how i do it too i come up with an image often because i've had a really bad dream um oh, yes. and then uh, and then i come up with an image and come out the other side with a story i i have a ghost story collection um and at least two that's out there it's called um this is not a picture 
And um, at least two of the things in there are basically images that started with images that came from my imagination and then grew out into stories the other way. And as long as the image is central for me. Mm-hmm. Gretchen? So I certainly um, do a lot of imagistic storytelling. I have a lot of, of crazy nightmares and those almost invariably wind up in my work. But when I sit down to write fiction, the first thing I ask myself is, what am I scared of? What is haunting to me? Um, and once I have that, I find a way to make it a skin, to fit it into a real world or a fantastical world. Like when I was writing Manhunt, I had my doctor had messed up my prescription and I, I had didn't have my HRT for about a month and I was just like so bone deep anxious about it. And I, finally I was like, oh, I should write about that. I should write about how scary it is to not have access to the things that that make living like tenable um and I, for me it can be a really fertile approach to take something that i'm struggling with and sublimate it into a story that actually brings me to a question that i was going to ask later on but um what scares you Let's let's start, uh, Gretchen. Let's start with you. You already mentioned one thing. Um. Yeah, obviously, like infrastructural collapse is is frightening to me. Um. The things that like have terrified me my whole life, I have a real fear of getting stuck. Um. And and a terrible, terrible fear of caves. The idea of being stuck underground like no no one can talk to me about the guy who got stuck in nutty putty cave i'll kill them before they can finish the thing <laughs> mm. and then the other thing that's really deeply frightening to me um is uh collaborators i feel really frightened knowing that the queer community is full of people who essentially hate what queers have always been and are just waiting for a chance to inform on the rest of us so that they can, you know, get a white picket fence and 2.5 cars or whatever. (gasps) 2.5 cars? Whatever the average number of cars is. Okay. (laughs) Howard? Um, What scares me? Um, So what scares me most of all, I think, is public ostracism, relational breakdown, um, exile, um, abuse, gaslighting, things like that. And that does tend to come out in my own fiction work, of which not actually a lot has seen the light of day, only a small amount. Um, Most of my fiction that's published is actually in role-playing games many years ago that may not even be in print anymore. Um, but yeah, relationship right? One of the reasons why I wound up writing a hundred and fifty thousand word book on folk horror is because largely you have communities that are for whatever reason arrayed against a single person or a couple of people, often it's the classic pagan village conspiracy. And the idea discovering that 
they were out to get you all along is an experience that we as queer and gender non-conforming people and trans people I think can recognize yeah we're never far as well we're never far away and and as Gretchen said when some of our own are actually part of that it's even worse um but yeah the fact that they might be out to get me all along the fact that I might actually be the person who they intended to put in the wicker man all along um the the Scottish one, not 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 the one with Nicholas Cage in. Not I, the bees. I've got standards. Not no. the bees. I actually have no, that on a t-shirt. Someone gave that to me on, on a t-shirt <laughs> a few years ago for my birthday. Um, but but yeah, um, yeah, no, not the Nicholas Cage one. Not the Wickerless Cage man, as, <laughs> as one of my friends likes to call it. Um, but yeah, um, it, it's yeah yeah that sort of thing where. Essentially, to be the victim of the pagan village conspiracy, however you see it. And I mean, you sort of see that in a lot of movies that aren't necessarily folk horror. So, for example, Rosemary's Baby, you could call it a pagan West Village conspiracy, but it's the Upper West Side, and I've got a friend in New York who'd kill me if I got that wrong. Um, <laughs> so that joke's sort of like floating in the Hudson, face down. Um, but yeah, uh, the idea that the people around you are being corrupted and may not be on your side. Yeah. Terrifies me. The people Something you... along the lines of uh, the Stepford Wives. <laughs> More like... The Stepford Wives, yes. God damn it. That's such a scary movie. Invasion of the Body Snatcher. Yeah. I touched stuff. Mm -hmm. Invasion of the Body Snatcher, particularly the 1979 version, because there's like five versions of that now. Oh, like that. Like, it, it all I, depends. But the 70s version are in a way the best. Yeah. Mm. 79 version is absolutely the best hard agree yeah yeah 100%. allison what scares you uh the uh loss of agency have it having no agency um and the idea of uh of loss of control um control over uh over over oneself uh of one's own own mind consciousness uh position and place in uh in society and and culture i i'd, I'd say um yeah those uh those are probably the things i find most uh most terrifying um having having no agency uh to the point where you can uh as 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 they uh, as they quoted to to rage against the dying of the light um but for it to be futile and and ineffective i think is probably the most terrifying thing uh to to just feel that any attempts uh, that uh, that that you that you that you try to to exert um, control of uh, of yourself or uh, or of the world around you is is essentially in in some manner doomed for to to failure due to orchestration or or systems that are in place that you have no uh, control over or means to change. I'd I'd say would be the most terrifying. Gotcha. So everything being predetermined. Mm, yes. Uh, the 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 entire idea of uh, of of predestination, predetermined uh, uh, 
uh, world and 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 the, the the idea of 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 if there is a a, a human soul that it is in in some way uh, destined for for any one particular like route or path uh, uh, despite whatever uh, however however you feel or, or or any attempts to to control your own destiny yeah that that would probably be the most terrifying thing and uh, and lemons I don't like lemon. <laughs> Right, yeah, no, I feel the same about ketchup, actually. But, um, actually, no, Alison, that's a really fantastic point. I was thinking, because that reminds me, because that's the precise thing that evangelical Christians find comforting. I know, yeah, it's, it's strange. And doesn't that raise the point that we as queer people often find the things that other people find comforting really fucking frightening it is because my partner likes marmite and i find <laughs> it absolutely horrifying i feel like as someone who has met a lot of evangelical christians those are not comforted people those are people living in a constant state of like externalized aggressive anxiety who have like no relationship with their own emotions um, having been an evangelical Christian, you're not 100% wrong there. Yeah. Which is, I was going to say, which is ironic considering one of the, uh, depending upon how you view it, um, he, God was supposed to give you free will. Right. <sighs> yeah, but there's certain, we could, we could like do an entire podcast on how Protestantism um, undermines that. <laughs> oh, yeah. But... It could kill us all. You know, <laughs> and and thing is a lot. <laughs> thing is a lot of that does look kind of tie into the works of Clive Barker as well, isn't it? Because he touched on oh too. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, absolutely. The second time I've mentioned Clive Barker. <laughs> Wait, you mean Hellraiser's gay? When did Hellraiser get gay? <laughs> Corella, do you have anything? <laughs> well. I don't want I I want to be the the one who's who's all like oh you know the real life scares me because that's fucking <laughs> trite sort of thing, um, but yeah I mean I will say like you know um, I as and this is gonna sound incredibly naive but you know I'm someone who kind of came into knowledge of myself you know a little later in life and I'm generally you know uh, boy moding and passing in public and so I don't experience a lot of um, things so the last few years you know just seeing um a, a lot of stuff that i think most queer people were more aware of being out there um has just been kind of very frightening and obvious i mean obviously we all know yeah. that um seeing i think especially just recently where we have a lot of you know queer youth standing in front of you know state legislators and medical boards and you know begging for their lives and the just kind of cartoonish sneering evil of the people who are telling them fuck you no um it's it's very you know it's it's extremely frightening and um you know and again like that's that's very obvious just to know that like what we're up against is you know com- just this wave of complete irrational pointless hate yeah. um but also uh yeah um to be a little little more uh goofy well, the thing that I can't stand and will always squick me is uh, um, evil children, <laughs> oh, like yeah. uh, midwitch cuckoo type stuff. 
I, the I omen at cemetery. Um, my wife. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. My wife made me watch. Uh, there's something about. Oh Kevin, God, I can't even do um, that because she was a. Oh, she was obsessed with the actor in Ezra it. Miller. I don't remember. Uh, Ezra Miller, thank you. She was really into Ezra Miller. She's like, "Oh, watch Ezra oh, Miller with me." You got and, <laughs> and of course, I watched it. It was like, "Oh, great!" <laughs> it's now it's in my head, you know, because just the idea of like, "Oh, you have a little person that you you can't get away from, and no one's going to believe you that they're trying to kill you." It's like, uh, uh, no, they can't take that. I'm responsible for their well-being. I I think if it wasn't for that, uh, if yeah, it wasn't for yeah. that, I'd watched uh, The Omen at a ridiculously young age. I would probably be in exactly the same situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually can't handle yeah. can't handle it, um, horror films where horrible things happen to children. I'm the same. Um, you know, so I'm also <laughs> okay with it. Uh, <laughs> all right, but now go back to go back weirdly. To what the, yeah. Um, said. Um, I, I think that the wave of hatred against trans people is one of the things that's at least as bad in the UK as well at the yeah. moment. Um, so we only last week had some, the terrible case of, of, of a trans teenager who was uh, murdered in a hate crime. And the press going, there's no way of telling it's a hate crime. It may have been motivated yeah. because she was trans, mm. but that doesn't make it a hate crime. Um, Fuck you, Guardian. Um, but yeah, like, it, this, this is a thing, and it's not helped by... So I went to a vigil for that, for that, that kid, and um, a, bunch of, a bunch of socialists turned up with, post, with their face on posters and their logo on the posters and handed them out to people and took pictures so they made it look like they'd organised the protest. And... Uh... It, it, it's like, and I mean, Alison will understand that allies really aren't worth the points cost on the table, generally. That's why we don't use them in tournaments. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, it sounds a lot like some stuff in uh, America in, when things like that happen. Uh, I'm pr pretty sure, uh, Corella and Gretchen, uh, thoughts and prayers? Uh uh, you know, of course, USA. We have, we have the Democrats doing the same thing. As soon as there's a tragedy, they position themselves yeah. as these these great champions of of queer people. You know, just a couple of weeks ago in the State of the Union, the big address that the president makes um, to the nation, Biden was like, "Trans children, I will defend you." And it's like, okay, cool. When? Go <laughs> <laughs> on then. How? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, are there still children in cages on the border? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can we check? It just got a lot worse. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, let's let's be let's be completely honest. Their allyship goes as far as until the next Harry Potter game comes out. Ooh. Oh, you had to mention it. <laughs> yes, I I have no no barrier with that. I'm afraid. I thought it was illegal to say bad things about Harry Potter over there. Oh, yeah, dude. She's very litigious. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, she'll sue you. Raul and Raul will go America, for you. So she's a son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> she sucks. 
Let's move on to something a little bit uh, lighter hearted and let's talk about humor and horror. They tend to go hand in hand in many situations, with gallows humor often being one example. Satire and parody often work well, often in a meta-narrative context. What is it about being able to laugh at terrible sights and situations that help us claw us back some sanity from the darkness? How about let's start with you, Corella? Sure. So um, I I think, like you said, they are kind of natural... um, bedfellows i guess because you know if you see something that you you that is just beyond comprehension and and you can't deal with it you know the natural reaction is you're either going to you know laugh at the absurdity of it or or be afraid so uh there's a lot of things that kind of cross over and and in a sense you know humor it does it does help us kind of like deal with stuff i know that you know when i do midnight pals um you know i try to keep it light but of course um, you know, there's lately there's a lot of bad shit, and so a lot of the jokes have been getting, you know, extremely bleak. And it's there's a lot where it's like, you know, you write a joke and say, like, ah, it's cool, I'm, I'm gonna go kill myself now. But um, <laughs> oh, uh, so you know, I mean, I think it's very important to be able to to Ouch. laugh, to stay sane. At this, I mean, at the same time, it is also, um, it's also kind of like the dog in the in the burning building. This is fine, you know. Mm. It's like, yeah, it's like not really. It, it's it's not fine but yeah um but uh also uh just there there are a lot of things right now uh sorry to ramble a bit um where oh, i've no, noticed um especially yeah, like, oh okay there's there's a lot of um very interesting things coming out now that really kind of lean into um the 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 connection between humor and horror uh almost like a lot of kind of absurd almost dada horror um, you know, a lot of the things coming, I think, from the onion, like um, uh, unedited footage of a bear or um, uh, porking across America, which are just like weird existential horror, but also played for laughs on some level. Um, another thing like uh, the, the big one with the kids now with the puppets. Uh, 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 yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. It's um. What is it? Don't, don't hug me. I'm scared. I think. Yes. Is the name of it. Oh, yeah. That's the one. Back. Yeah. Yes, they uh, are. They, I think they're making a series. If I, that is, I heard but, they were doing a TV series. Why? Yeah. I haven't heard of this. What is this? But, it's a, a series of like, um, absurdist horror. Um, Sesame Street. Yeah. Only horror. Mm, I'll have a look for that. Um, I mean, here in the UK, we've got um a long tradition of horror basically informing comedy so you have the league of gentlemen yes yes and recently inside number nine as well which essentially is both the league of gentlemen and inside number nine both feed off classic horror and are terrifying they are really scary as well as being hilariously funny i think horror and screams and laughter both come from absurdity and there's only a matter of degree between the two of them. This is true. Even on a on a psychological level, they uh, horror and comedy both um, both activate the same centers of the uh, of the brain. Uh, so th- there is a very strong connection uh, with that, um, and psychologically as well. Um, even down to in terms of uh, of delivery, um, timing in horror and comedy. Uh, both work very similar, so it, they they are they are more closely linked on a 
on a on a primal and thematic level than uh, than anyone might imagine at the first uh, first glance. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm just thinking of something like The Evil Dead, for example. Mm, yes. Oh, such a funny movie. <laughs> oh, the the bit in that when uh, Bruce Campbell and the entire room just starts laughing is simultaneously like one of the funniest and most unnerving things I've ever seen in a film. Yeah. That was actually my exact thought at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Gretchen, what about you? So I, I hate fun. <laughs> um, I, I wake up every morning and I, I think of that, that Trent Reznor set where he said, we're here to have a bad time when characters like crack a joke when they see something unfathomable i fucking hate it i want to sit there and watch someone's soul collapse in real time i don't want to see someone crack a little joss whedon line and then skip on with their day um so yeah that's the bad yeah. side bad sort of horror comedy <laughs> I, that's the yeah. shit sort of horror comedy. i like horror is church for me and when i'm in church i would like to be reverent not in a real church but you know in <laughs> <laughs> in mind, I want to spend time looking at at why I'm there. I want to appreciate these fictional sensations. I want to let them into my body and into my mind. Um, and I, I enjoy the odd horror comedy. There, there's probably like a double handful of them that I I will watch. Um, I like Arsenic and Old Lace as much as the next person. Mm-hmm. But good call. Cool. In general, for me. I don't like to combine them. Gotcha. I think horror is as far as that is funniest when it's played straight. Absolutely. It's, um, Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I always say that there's never been a sitcom that was funnier than the Sopranos. And the Sopranos is a, a, a very messed up, really dark show, but it's funny because people are absurd. And if you just show yeah. them going about their days, you can, you can, get people laughing hysterically over everyday actions. You you don't have to write jokes so much. You don't have to telegraph what you're doing. Um, so I, I prefer sort of a naturalistic approach to humor. So the absurdity yeah. of reality? Right. And, and, and not in a way where you hang a lampshade on it either. Just show people as they are, and that's inherently funny. Yeah, How? absolutely. Nothing is worse yeah. than someone in a genre thing who knows they're in a genre oh, thing, so which is the worst yeah, thing yeah. about Joss Whedon. That's <laughs> why Joss Whedon stuff is not good, because everybody knows they're in a thing and it just takes you right out of it. So nothing meta. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, horror can be very funny. It's just the, the, it should be real to the characters as they experience it or else it's like why are if they're not taking it seriously why are we watching it at all at that point you know it's it's it, the artifice falls down exactly um yeah meta meta narratives had their time we we can live yeah. in a post meta meta universe now I yeah think. yeah the 90s are over we don't need that anymore. calvino already wrote if on a winter's night a traveler we don't need to write it again <laughs> it's like yeah, we don't, we don't need to have, well, that happened after, you know, every time a ghost appears. In fact, if that ever happens in yes. my hearing, I will kill the person who wrote it. 
Careful, we you ta- get banned from Twitter again. <laughs> <laughs> now, not all horror narratives unfold in the traditional forms. Collaborations and interactive storytelling such as tabletop RPGs, video games... Uh, and adaptations of existing stories or new ones altogether all have major impact on the scope of modern horror. What alternate vehicles for horror have you been most have been both noteworthy or influential for you, Howard? Let's start with you. Oh, well, I spent several years working in tabletop role playing games. I actually self published one a few years ago just as a thought experiment, which was called The Shivering Circle, which was a folk horror role playing game. I think a good horror game whether it's a video game or a tabletop game needs to have something in the rules that expresses a sense of tension because obviously you know when you're looking at little dice on the table they're not that scary so for example call of cthulhu is the classic one the, the classic cosmic horror lovecraftian one has this rule called the sanity rule which basically you, it's just a number from 1 to 100, and you, if you fail that number, you lose a few points, which means you have a greater chance of failing next time, and so on. And, it, you, you know, and as it falls down, there's a sense of increasing tension that comes along with it. And I think, and, and on the other hand, you've got um, the World of Darkness games, like Vampire, which I think Alison's probably more qualified to talk about because um well you've you've worked on oh my goodness you've even linked it in the chat um allison's more qualified to talk about the world of darkness games having worked on them more recently i think um i i've not worked on them as extensively as you have so um i, I would oh, say okay then. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I mean the main thing is is that you have a track called humanity which is essentially is the oh god what have i done horror so vampire the masquerade and the less good version that i worked on vampire the requiem um have i think called the humanity track which is a number from one to ten and essentially you have a vampire you have kick-ass vampire powers you get better at using these powers but the better you get at using these powers the more awful things you have to do to get to use them and the more at risk you are of losing your humanity, the lower you get on the humanity, the easier it is to lose humanity and become a worse person and eventually become a monster and lose all agency and lose your character, which, again, is one of the things Alison was talking about. And I think when you have a game that has... I think the horror games are unique in that they can make a death spiral fun. Um, well, <laughs> we, we, say, we say fun. So, uh, sorry, Gretchen. But, um, <laughs> you know, you know we, they, they can make a death spiral part of the experience. And so when it's done properly, um, because it can be the easiest thing in the world to just go a bit weeden with it, um, it can be really, really effective. Considering it can be a interact because it's an interactive storytelling. Yes. So it, 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 it's interactive. It's has this, it has this power to it that it can develop, which, um, because you actually, you can actually imagine yourself as part of the experience and part of the terrible things that are happening. 
Howard, um, have you played Ten Candles? I have not. I would, recommend, I would recommend that you play Ten Candles. Uh, we play it every Halloween. Um, the game is played uh, just as a collaborative storytelling game uh, with, your, with your group of friends around the table. Um, the vibe generally is survival horror. Um, it's the middle of the night, all the power's gone out. Um, you're, you have ten little candles uh, laid around the table, literal physical candles. As you fail during the game, you extinguish the candles one by one. Um, uh, when the tenth one goes out, the game ends. That's amazing. Um, this, is, this is like that horror game some years ago that used the Jenga Tower. Mm -hmm. But less ableist. Yes. Let's say this. I mean, the game that I wrote, um, you have little stone circles on your character, a little stone circle on your character sheet, and as you fail, you colour in the stone circle, the stones in the circle, so they go black. And when the circles colour in, coloured in, then the game ends. So it's a similar sort of thing. But yeah, the candles—that sounds super atmospheric, doesn't it? Um, by all means, I will happily like get you involved in a game at any point if we're ever nearby. Not really one you can do online. Definitely have to do it in person, though. Lovely game. Oh, hell yeah. So, Allison, I am assuming you are agreeing with tabletop being uh, one of those uh, one of those other uh, genres that horror definitely fits into. I definitely think it has the potential to. Yes, um, there's there are there are many games that really capture it very well. Um, I think because and and this might just just be me. I I like horror as a genre which is which is presented, um, telling a story like collectively uh, around uh, like, around a group of people, verbal storytelling. Um, I think that's that's something I uh, I, I like um, with uh, we, we we have like quite a quite a lively little um, group of uh, of local authors who do events um, several times throughout uh, throughout the year and uh, and our Halloween ones are are just a lot of fun. Um, we all kind of like work together to put together short stories and then present them. Um, and if we can rent out the uh, an, an, an excellent location, um, usually one of the local castles, um, the oh. atmosphere that you can get there is just absolutely divine. So yes, hundred um, percent. I suppose that's that's essentially the uh, the the modern equivalent of the uh, gathering around a campfire to uh, to tell uh, to tell a, an, an old folk story, um, and I, I think someone's going to say something about urban legends as well. It's it's kind of similar to that as well. Communal horror. Uh, yes, communal horror. That's I that's keep the best way to say it. Uh, I keep thinking back to the. Um, at this point, old American show. Are you afraid of the dark? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh no! Don't say it's old. <laughs> I know. I know. But Gretchen, how about you? So this is something I thought a lot about um, when I saw the the list of questions that you you'd prepared for us, and my answer is actually music. Oh. I feel like hey. in the past 15 to 20 years, there has been this explosion 
in not just the soundtracks to horror films, but like the the rise of dark ambient as a genre and um, bands like Cryo and um, Atrium Carceri. And then in film, you have artists like Micah Levy, uh, who composed the score for Under the Skin, which is maybe one of the best two or three film scores of all time. Um, and of course, music is such a, a primal medium. It is sound directly eliciting emotional response from listeners. There's there's almost no intercession. It certainly is not as like cognitively complex as, as a film um, to watch. I feel like so much of, of horror music is at this really exciting point where it's starting to push into new territory for for what frightens its listeners and starting to uncover things in that process and to develop like entirely new languages for sound. Bandcamp is actually full of this entire genre of hauntological music and fictional soundtracks, the movies that were never made. Um, so that, for instance, I can think of a band called the Heartwood Institute that you can find on Bandcamp. Pretty much everything they do is sort of um, ambient, ambient sort of hauntological stuff based upon films that never really happened. Mm. Like that. And finally, Corella, what about you? Um, so... I'm I'm not sure how to, how to say this, but um, there's what I've been really interested in is um, there's a lot of interesting stuff, kind of in in I guess you call it found document type horror, and you know we have oh. a lot of films on that, but I've I've been really interested in um, almost like websites, especially seem to do this where they create a world. There's no real narrative, or at least not one on the surface. You're just getting documents about a thing and slowly piecing it together almost like um i, I guess you call those real world games or whatever not not a real oh, game I'm you're talking sure. about um, the if i'm correct the ar the thank you, augmented I think yep the yeah, ar yeah um it's sort of like that i mean i'm seeing things like um uh the big one that i think of is mystery flesh pit national park where you're just it's a, a website that imagines a world where there's a national park that's just a, a big mystery flesh pit and you're getting like uh brochures and government PSAs about this this weird thing um and other things like uh like uh, local 58 uh, I think it's 58 and um uh welcome to scarfolk kind of also playing in those areas where oh, you're getting yeah. you know a, a sight into a diff into a world this weird world um there's um the one I think actually is is uh, really interesting, at least to me, is uh, if if you guys have heard of Omega Mart, um, which is yes. yeah, it's like an actual like art installation that you can go to, and it's like a big fake grocery store. And the idea is, I guess, that like they have some sort of portal to an altered dimension, and they get weird products. But you can go to this thing and walk around in this grocery store and like and just experience and just look at products and weird things and try and piece together what it's all about. Um, so it's just, it's, it's a new, it's a style of horror that I see being 
kind of more more popular these days and now you know uh, we have ways to communicate that where we can kind of uh play around in a little more it's um and um another thing which is not really related to that but also uh or maybe it is i don't know um i was also thinking of bog leech's awful hospital which is a more traditional narrative but it's set up to mimic like a 90s point and click LucasArts Sierra type video game. I which, love those games. Yeah, it's it just adds a whole another level to the experience, which I don't know. It's it's a uh, something to watch for, I think. Yeah. Uh ARGs have definitely becoming uh much more popular. Um I remember well there's something called Happy Meat Farm, which is one of the big ones currently, I think. Um I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, that yeah, that's another one of those. Um, it's definitely, definitely along those lines of yeah, f uh, farm of uh, website, farm, Twitter account, um, where it connects all the social media things, and um, you you have you have to start looking in deep, finding things in order to actually reveal what's happening. Yeah, yeah, it's just the idea of like you're you're never getting the full picture; you're just kind of piecing together bits of the weirdness that really appeals to me in these yeah. things. Mm -hmm. I think we'd be remiss not okay. to mention creepypasta as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that absolutely. Kind of barely um, has an author faux urban legend fiction has just become enormously influential. Yeah. yeah you I really guess we're starting it. Mm -hmm. okay. You see, you see it in things like the, um, the SP SCP yeah. stuff. Yep, the, for, the SCP forums and things, um, which I, I've I've kind of a weird relationship with. I, I worked for a while as an assistant to a young man with a profound learning disability, and he believed that the SP, SCP stuff was real, and it terrified oh. him. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah. Let's move on a little bit to. Do you believe LGBT? Uh, Plus Q horror is a response, a rebuke, or a subversion of mainstream horror tropes, rules, and expectations. Um, I would say that it's its own thing. Some of it is surely in response to to mainstream horror, but just as much of it proceeds organically from our experience of life, and some of that is very much in line with other people's experiences of life. You know. I think it's it's really common, especially for for well-meaning straight people, to look at at trans people, at queer people in general, and be like, "Whoa, I couldn't possibly understand any of that." And the truth is that you understand almost all of it. You know what it's like to be in love. You know what it's like to to desire another person. You know what it's like to be uncomfortable in your body. And when you allow yourself to draw connections between those mundane experiences and someone else's, then they become much less alien to you. So so sometimes horror has universal truths at its Absolutely. core. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I do think that, that the milieu of, of LGBT horror is very singular. Um, and, and a lot of that is, is dictated by, like, the oppression and violence that we live with. But I, I don't think it's a very reactionary genre. I think a lot of it is 
exploring things that we are forbidden to explore in polite society. You can call that a reaction, but I think it's more of an evasion. Mm. Allison, mm. I think you've, uh, you've 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 made a few very very good points there. Um, I can I can definitely agree with you. Actually, yeah, yeah. Um, what I would like to uh, to kind of consider is uh, is the idea of of horror as a as a genre itself um remembering that uh, the the genres are constructed uh they're things much much like uh, much like other societal constructs that we uh, that we live with on a on an almost daily basis they are uh, they're ideas that have been uh, that have been given form um by society by the uh by the the the, the way that that audiences and uh, and and especially businesses in uh, in, a, in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways um, take stories and uh, and digest them and and put them across um, and given that historically a lot of horror has been written um, by cishet uh, writers for cishet audiences um, it makes me wonder now that we're seeing a form of what queer horror looks like um is it something that in future queer writers and queer audiences are going to want to develop outside of the the boundaries of what genres conventionally are could queer horror become something entirely disassociated with what horror has been before uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps you know, different genres entirely. Maybe, may, maybe something entirely outside of genre. Um, I have no idea. Evolving the concept. Possibly, possibly, yeah, yeah. Okay, Corella. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I think Gretchen really hit it on the head. Like, you know, these are to some extent, you know, universal experiences and and horror, like, um you know you, you can you can see that like we're we're more you know there's there's things that that connect us all you can understand other people's experience through it um and i also think like she said that queer horror is kind of is kind of its own thing in a way because um uh i uh horror is general generally you know there's there's a lot of um obsession with uh categorizing things everything has to be kind of in its category and um if something's not in the right category then obviously then it's like oh it's even if it's not dangerous it's it's threatening and it's wrong and there's the uncanny valley thing and i think a lot of cosmic and body horror especially kind of prefaced on this idea and um you know in queerness also there's you know categories and because we're humans, we like to categorize things, but, but, but queerness kind of, um, it, it kind of defies categorization. They have very permeable boundaries. Um, you know, like we could say like, oh, you know, the people now we, we like to try and, you know, differentiate, I don't know, a pan and a bi experience, but it's like, th there's a lot of crossover between d these things. And, um, I, I think that, um you know like a lot of 
queer people, you know, if you ask us like, what, what are you? It's like, well, a lot of us understand more so that, that, that the answer to that is going to change over time. And maybe we will never have a satisfactory answer to that. Um, so I think that like queer horror, especially, uh, I mean, all, all human experiences like fluid, but I think queer horror, especially because of that compared to, to other horror, it doesn't, um, uh, it's always going to be messy and it doesn't, it doesn't tidy up in the same way. You just can't do it. So, um, and that, I think it's kind of, it's, it's always going to be its own unique thing. I was actually just about to say, um, so what you're saying is queer horror, like queer people is unique to each person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Anne Howard. I think there's a lot to add to that. I think um, that everyone else here has basically said all the most important salient points. What I would say is that we could probably get a sort of clue as to see where queer horror as, as a subgenre might wind up going, or not, not a subgenre, a mode, or even like a, um, a something produced by queer people might go by comparing it to horror made by other marginalized groups that has existed mm. in the past. So for example, you could look, for example, at the work of Jordan Peele, um, mm. Mm. who writes, you know, he's done three fantastic horror films about the black experience in America. Mm. Um, my favorite one's actually Us by a mile, which puts me in a minority. A but, um, it is such a great movie, so good. Um, I think it's basically the perfect horror movie from my book. Um, but you can sort of see that that's a film that couldn't be made by a white director um, because it's about the anxiety of being a member of a certain group of people. And you can sort of see that these things are sort of getting into a sort of vaguely confused mainstream acceptance. And <laughs> You know, once, you know, you know, I don't think, I don't think, you know, I'm never, re there's a point in which us, for example, communicates a whole bunch of anxieties about being black in America in the 21st century. But at the same time, I'm not black in America, I'm not in America. So there's only so far I can go. Like, and, and people look at it and they can see something that they can watch and even get disturbed and entertained by. And us is a funny movie without actually trying to be funny as well. But we're always going to have a sort of horror that is unique. And there's going to be a point where there's going to be queer horrors that are going to go out there and they're going to get the straights liking them without necessarily getting them. And once we reach that sweet spot, then that's where we're going to start seeing them enter the mainstream. But they're never going to be wholly mainstream. Mm-hmm. And all of that sounded better in my head. But yeah, that's, that's, and, and I, I'm not sure I should be given the final word there, really. <laughs> <laughs> you did good. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you're all fantastic and I love you. Right back um, at you, Howard. Yeah. Now, Thanks. we touched on this earlier, specifically Gretchen did, but what makes a bad use of LGBTQ plus characters and themes in horror? A bad writer. <laughs> That's it. There's... Right, we can all go home now. <laughs> There's nothing a good writer can't transform into worthwhile fiction. This is true. 
I, I truly true. believe that yeah, it's 100%. just a matter of of insight and empathy and craft. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Howard? <laughs> no, uh, yeah. No, um, I think that's basically I think one of the things that Greta mentioned earlier on, of course, is about the idea of any minority being represented as the perfect version of itself. The idea, the most dangerous thing, and we're seeing this in genre fiction, is when queer people have to be perfect. You know, it's like once upon a time, we weren't allowed queer villains. Like, I'm going to tabletop gaming, right? This, this will basically mean remove me from polite society. But <laughs> as a kid and right up to the present day, Warhammer, right? And aged 13, a book called Realm of Chaos Slaves to Darkness came out where one of the evil factions in there were the, were the, were the forces of the chaos god Slanesh, who was transgender. And everybody who worshipped Slanesh wound up becoming transgender. And age 13, I'm like, this vibes with me. I don't know uh, why. So hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But it's still an un, you know, it basically they've done their best, but it's still basically an irredeemably evil faction. <laughs> but at the same time, it's actually like the only faction that now has they them characters in it and it's representation so it's actually bad yeah it's what Gretchen said you can have terrible people villain you can have queer villains uh, you know a good writer can make a queer villain believable you know without making them fetishistic or all those other things that you might have seen for example in 1970s Italian movies where you know people weren't lesbian so much as letting it up for the camera you know, that sort of thing. You, you have that thing where a good right, we, we can be villains. We mm -hmm. should be able to be villains without being villains because we're queer. Queerness is a part of the character as opposed to the Queerness reason. is a part of the person as opposed to the, like, it being an evil characteristic. Because... You, like queer queerness and disability are two of the things that you see as villains in like you know bond mm -hmm. movies right. and things like that and they're essentially just evil characteristics yeah there is a way that queerness can be a thing without it being an evil characteristic it can be in the other box mm -hmm. there's a safe for work box of a person's identity and a not safe for work box <laughs> And sometimes the biggest danger we have is that we put our queerness in the not safe for work box, along with all our fetishes and all that other shit that we don't talk about in polite society and consider it as part of that. But really it should be in the safe for work box because it's what it's part of our everyday lives and our existence. And we don't have to be doing the deep. A lot of the people who hate us think that queerness is just about fucking and it's not. It's who we are. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference, I think. I see what you're saying. I do think that mm -hmm. there's a tendency to sort of defensively desexualize queerness. Yes, that's also yeah. true as well. But again, 
again, you, a queerness, a queer person could be sexual without the queerness being in the sexual box. Sure, I see. Yeah, I see. Does that make sense? Yep. Corella. Um. Well, sorry. What was the question again? <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's okay. I mean, everyone's doing uh, putting out lots of great information, and you just you just keep listening. And you're like, wait, where did we get off? <laughs> but no. Um. The question is, uh, what makes a bad use of LGBTQ plus characters and themes in horror? Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I think. I mean, I would. I would agree that like. You know, in in skilled hands, even something that's like you know a, a huge cliche or problematic can can be done well and can you know still be redeemed. I think that you know, I, and I I wouldn't really say that like oh, there's a bad thing you should never do that that's going to limit you in what you want to explore. And I think even like you know really, and even like things that seem or that are badly done can can still have merit in a way um i was actually thinking of when i was this question like if you've ever seen the movie sleepaway camp which is um mm -hmm. mo mostly famous for the the reveal at the end which is yep. like you know really like on paper like yeah, this is the most transphobic thing ever but every trans person i know who's seen this movie is like angela rules she's an icon and so i mean you know, death of the author i guess but you know there's that yeah, like I said, thing, things are very messy in a lot of queer stuff. But I would say the one thing that I that I do think is very bad and I don't like is, and I see this in some books where there's a queer character and the extent of their queerness and the whole reason for them to be queer is so that they can notice when allies put rainbow stickers on stuff. And oh god, I <laughs> I, I don't I think I don't like that. I think That's it's dumb. dumb as hell. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do more, uh, do better, I guess. But, um, you know, I know that some writers are like, they like doing like, Oh, they're queer. They're, they're more than just that. So it's like, yeah. Okay. You know, they're like ordinary people. They're like normal people. They just see rainbow stickers. More. <laughs> uh, 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 I don't, mm. Yeah. Um, and Allison, how about you? Um, a character's queerness that can be easily excised from a film in order that the company can maximize its profits from sales to foreign markets where queerness is less acceptable. Mm. Yes. That's mm. something that annoys me. Like America Havers in the last Doctor Strange movie. Like most of the Marvel and in, like in all fact, of the, the Marvel Disney movies. ones, yeah, the Disney oh, ones all in general. All that stuff can go straight to hell. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, yeah, lots of the, uh, for, yeah, the first, uh, like the first gay character. Uh, they've done that like how many times now? <laughs> but I've got one more question before we go. But before that, um, if you check in the Allura Public Radio chat, um. Uh, Ivy did a little sketch for uh, Corella. Oh, oh, let me see. Wait, wait. I have to, I have to click on which, 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 which of these? Alora yeah, Public Radio, uh, the uh, text oh, that's channel. Cool. Okay, let me, let me let me scroll down. Oh, oh my God, that's awesome! Oh my God, I love you, Ivy. Thank you. Oh. But yeah. <laughs> 
I, so lovely. Yeah, Ivy is yeah our resident um, artist, and but before we go, I've got a fun little question for you. Um, which author would you want to write the horror story starring you? <laughs> Gretchen. Oh, oh man. Um, I would love for someone to dig up the the tragically died too early '80s paperback queen Melanie Tem and to just write like the filthiest fucking story imaginable. That woman was so dirty. <laughs> I love her. Howard? Oh God. Um. Actually, you know what? Gwendolyn Keist would probably do a good job. Um. I, I, she wrote, she wrote, um, a book called The Rust Maidens a few years ago. And, um, off the back of it, I got to know her and she is one of the loveliest humans ever, but also she writes fantastically haunting horror and I might get out alive, mainly. <laughs> so I, I'd like to be in a haunting story where I don't die. And I think Gwendolyn could do that. You, so, okay, yeah. so you want to be in a story where you might actually survive. Chicken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Corella? Um, I, I am going to have a basic bitch answer and say I would like Junji Ito. I Ooh. want to be drawn oh all, all gross. I, I want him to draw me like one of his gross girls. <laughs> <laughs> Not French and... this time. Gross. Yes, and it's just like I would. I would like to just. Yeah, I would. I would like him to destroy me. <laughs> <laughs> and Allison, I. I do not want my author to be identifiable. I would like them to carve something about me on the wall of a of a of a long buried tomb, and in millennia in the future, an archaeologist to dig it up. And have absolutely no idea what is going on. Ozymandias. <laughs> yes. Excellent. So we're just about done. So what I want to do is um, get where we can find all of you. Let's start back up with you, Allison. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, providing it still exists, um, <laughs> Alison Seib. Uh, you can also find me on Mastodon, where I am on uh, Dice.camp, uh, Alison Seib. Um, if you're really desperate, you can find me on my website, which is uh, discreetly called Seib's Website. Um, and you can also back me on Patreon, which is uh, Patreon forward slash um, Alison Seib. Excellent. Corella? Uh, so you can find uh, Midnight Pals on Twitter at uh, Midnight underscore Pals. I'm also on Twitter as Bitter Corella. And uh, myself and Midnight Pals are also mirrored as uh, Bitter Corella on Instagram. Uh, oh, sorry, not Instagram. No bitter, no, no Midnight Pals there. That's just me. Um, but uh, Midnight Pals can also be found on uh, Tumblr, Mastodon, Substack, my Patreon, uh, all under Bitter Corella, and you can also find me at www.bittercorella.com. Great. Uh, Howard? Um, I can be found at room207press.com. Um, on Twitter, I am How the Wood Moved. And um, you can also find me on Patreon at 
patreon.com slash Howard David Ingham. And Gretchen, I know right now you are suspended from Twitter, but... Yes, uh, for <laughs> screaming at Jesse Sandal and J.K. Rowling and all those other subhumans. But you can follow me on Twitter at Scumbelievable. And you can follow my critical writing and some short horror fiction on my Patreon, which is Patreon forward slash Gretchen Felker Martin. And you can buy Manhunt wherever books are sold. Once again, thank you all for coming thank you on. Thank for having us. Thank you. Yeah, this, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. 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 I good time. Gotta hit the road. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yep. Yeah, I'm out of here. And that's about all the time we have left for this podcast. I want to thank our guests, staff, and especially you for joining us at Alora Public Radio, the official podcast of Black Warren Books. You can find us on BlackWarrenBooks.com, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and of course our official Discord server is linked below. Also make sure to check out our amazing merchandise from our esteemed on-staff artist, Ivy Bath. Episodes are edited by me, Chris, and posted to Anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Remember, with Black Warren, be the hero, not a token. 